My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast, we listen to a recording of an interview of me by Tanzina Vega for the PRI radio show The Takeaway that originally aired on NPR on September 12, 2018. We turn now to Texas and a recent instance of police violence not against a student, but against a civilian in his own home. 26-year-old Botham Shinjan was shot and killed inside his Dallas apartment by off-duty police officer Amber Geiger. Geiger told authorities she thought she had walked into her own apartment and that she mistook Jean for an intruder. Geiger was arrested on manslaughter charges on Sunday, but the incident is prompting a hard look at violence perpetrated by police officers who are off the clock. Phil Stinson is a professor and criminologist at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, and he's also a former cop. And he's one of the few people collecting data on this underreported trend of off-duty police crime. When we look at the numbers, uh, about 900 non-federal sworn law enforcement officers, so that would be state troopers, police officers, deputy sheriffs, about 900 a year are arrested. And I have data going back to about 2005 in my database. So about 900 a year. And when we look at those 900 officers who are arrested annually, about 60% of them are arrested for crimes that occur while an officer is off duty. And what types, of, I mean, are we talking, I'm wondering, like, is are there different types of crimes that we should be looking at? But is there a pattern in the type of crime that these officers are arrested for when they're off duty? Well, I have a typology of police crime where I look at almost all of the crime that's committed by officers, whether they're arrested for a crime that occurs on duty or off duty, is one or more of five different types. So alcohol-related, drug-related, sex-related, violence-related, or profit-motivated crimes. And most of the crimes of officers who are arrested fall into those five types. If I were to add a sixth type, it would be uh, revenge-motivated crimes, where we see a number of officers each year are arrested for crimes that don't fall into any of those other five types, but they're just revenge for some reason. Now, the case that we're looking at is obviously um, pretty unique, I would imagine. Does this incident come across as unusual based on what we just talked about? Well, this is a strange incident, and the facts just don't seem to add up. Uh, By the way, she's not the first police officer to be arrested for walking into the wrong house thinking it was her own house. We had an officer several years ago from Delaware who was arrested after barging into the wrong house thinking it was his house, and he was arrested, I think, for criminal trespass and maybe some other related crimes. So it's, it's unusual. The thing about this is the facts just don't... Uh, uh, make a whole lot of sense. I think we need to learn a lot more about it. There are concerns that I have as to the officer's situational awareness. Apparently, she was in full uniform carrying her weapon, off-duty, going home, and somehow, apparently, was not only at the wrong door, but apparently on the wrong floor of her apartment building. And that that's of a concern to me. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think we have a lot we need to learn about uh, the facts of this case. And I think the investigation that's being conducted by state authorities will uh, hopefully uh, yield that information. I think some of the things that are surprising here are that um, at least what we're starting to see is one of the reasons that's being given is that she was working, the officer had worked a very long shift um, could have led to some sort of that situational lack of awareness. Do you find that um, officers who are just overtired are committing these crimes? You, you know, it's difficult from the data that I'm able to collect and analyze, but I can tell you anecdotally, and I can tell you from, from other research that's been done, is that stress, uh, shift work, 
uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. These are all factors that come into play with officers who are making the wrong decisions uh, on use of force incidents, both on duty and off duty. So I don't think we can discount that as a possibility. But, you know, with these types of crimes, there are things that we otherwise can't discount. We can't take race out of the equation. Anytime you're dealing with things in the criminal justice system, you have to look at race-related issues. And then one of the concerns that I've had for many years now uh, has to do with officers and off-duty firearms. So police officers in most jurisdictions across the country are encouraged, if not required, to carry their service weapons with them uh, when they're in public uh, while off-duty. And what I've seen is that hundreds of times over the last decade, uh, we've seen officers involved in off-duty incidents that can't be described in any other way as bizarre violence. You just can't explain the facts. Using firearms in ways that rational people would not use a firearm. But, but Phil, what, what, what's the, I mean, first of all, the, the, the encouragement to carry a weapon when you're off-duty, where does that come from? And what authority do off-duty police officers have to issue commands like that? Well, well, police officers generally have full powers of arrest, full law enforcement powers 24-7. I think historically it goes back to times that were much simpler when we were a much more rural uh, society, and we still have these policies in effect. And, and uh, there's actually a, a federal law that allows off-duty police officers to carry their firearms across state lines without uh, any sort of uh, registration of their uh, uh, firearms uh, to carry uh, you know, off-duty in other states. So it's, it's, it's a big issue, and, and I think we have to look at the police subculture and the way that police officers are socialized. And I know from my own background, I was a police officer for several years a long time ago, that police officers are socialized into an us versus them mentality. And quite literally, anyone who's not a law enforcement officer in this type of situation is perceived as a threat, as a potential enemy. And, and I think that's what we have here is we have an officer who's off duty who made uh, apparently made the wrong decisions in terms of use of force. But she encountered a situation where she couldn't get into an apartment that she thought she was her was her own. She gets into the apartment, apparently uh, came across uh, the young gentleman who she ended up uh, shooting and killing. And she made the wrong decision. You know, somebody who's not a law enforcement officer, somebody who's not carrying a weapon off duty, probably would have not perceived that person as a threat. Uh, in the way that she did. You would have been startled and you would have jumped back maybe and asked questions or ran out of the room or ran out of the apartment. But I think the police socialization process and the police subculture uh, is an integral component of uh, helping us to understand what happened here. Are there any uh, data that show differences in gender? Uh, this was obviously a white woman police officer um, we've seen other instances where women police officers have been involved in shootings, specifically of black Americans. Um, does your data show any gender breakdown? Well, only about uh, 5% of the cases in my database. So we have about 15,000 cases in my database of officers who were arrested uh, over the last 14 years, and that's about uh, 12 or 13,000 officers. The reason for the difference in the numbers there is that some officers have more than one arrest case during our study years uh, for a variety of reasons. So only about 5% of those cases are female officers. Uh, when we look at those uh, cases and try to do statistical analyses, we actually see that the uh, the police women, the female officers, are just as violent as the male officers in terms of the types of crimes they're getting involved in. And that, and that extends to officer-involved domestic violence and other off-duty crimes as well. Are you seeing um, 
I mean, you use news reports to collect the data, and I'm wondering, you know, the media obviously is imperfect. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the framing of these stories that you see and anything that you think is either helpful or problematic? Well, we do rely on on, on news sources, and, and the reason we do that, when I started looking into this uh, as a graduate student, I had been a police officer and worked as an attorney for about a decade and went back to school um, uh, uh, to ultimately get a Ph.D. in criminology. And as a, as a grad student, starting to look into ways that I could research this, realizing that the federal government uh, did not collect, uh, aggregate, uh, analyze, or disseminate any sort of information or data on crime and use of force by police officers. So that's how I got involved in this. Uh, so we try to triangulate our data sources. We rely heavily on uh, news articles that we find through a series of 48 Google alerts that constantly crawl the Google News search engine. They're the same search terms that I set up in 2004 and 2005. And uh, we continue to find cases on a daily basis. So we do triangulate our data sources. We try to get uh, videos of stories from the evening news in local communities. We get uh, radio transcripts, and uh, we also rely heavily on court records when we're able to get them. So it's a it's a very lengthy process, and it involves uh, you know a large research staff. I have about 15 student research assistants who are currently on payroll and grant funded positions, and um, it's it's a very complicated process that requires uh, a lot of different pieces to put it all together. And I'm also wondering if you're noticing any patterns in terms of the victims of these crimes. You mentioned uh, race uh, earlier in this conversation and the impact that that has on policing. It's no surprise we've continued to see instances uh, where white officers kill and shoot indiscriminately and and indiscriminately kill um, black Americans who are unarmed. Is this a pattern that you see in the data as well? You know, for many years, we did not collect data on the race of the officers or the race of the victims in these cases. I just didn't uh, think that uh, it was something we'd be able to figure out very easily from the data we had. And about uh, seven or eight years ago, one of my graduate research assistants uh, came to me and said, you know, I think we really need to uh, uh, track the race of the officers here, race and ethnicity. Uh, so we started to do that with, with a great deal of success. And it was only uh, about a year and a half ago that the foundation that currently uh, provides grant funding for my research group uh, came to me and said, you know, you really need to rethink this. You really need to start collecting data. Go back and look through these 15,000 cases in your database and the 1,100 that you're adding each year and uh, code these cases for variables on race and ethnicity. So we started doing that, uh, and it's a huge process to do that. And what we're finding is we can figure out the race and ethnicity of the uh, victims in, in about 20 to 25 percent of the arrest cases. But we have so many cases in our database, within the next six months to a year, we're going to start to have enough uh, that we'll be able to do statistical analyses and directly answer your questions about uh, the impact of race and ethnicity in these uh, police crime cases involving violence. And you also said you've been an officer yourself. When you talk to police officers, um, are there concerns about these types of incidences, uh, off-duty, carrying their weapon? Do they want to do this when they're off-duty? Um, I knew one police officer who actually felt that he should not carry his weapon off while he was off-duty and would keep it at home. Uh, what's the sense just on a personal level from the officers that you know? 
Well, it varies, but I would say that uh, you know, eight out of ten officers seem to have a very close relationship with their gun and badge, and they view it as something that they wouldn't leave home without. I think maybe that changes over the course of uh, the life course of an officer's career, and that's something that research needs to to look at more closely. But a minority uh, uh, number of officers, maybe twenty percent of officers, I think take that approach that you were speaking of. That over time they realize, you know, this is not something I'm comfortable with, having guns around my children and always having a gun, and I need my off duty time. Those are probably the healthiest officers, by the way, that take that approach. And I realize when I come out and say things like, well, I think it's time that we reconsider whether off-duty officers should always be carrying guns. It's something that law enforcement officers, uh, many of them, are not happy with when I say that. But when I say that, I'm also thinking of the fact that when we look at uh, the fact that about uh, 60% of the crimes for which officers are arrested that are off-duty are violent-related crimes. And of those violent-related off-duty crimes, about 42% of them are alcohol-related. In other words, the officer was intoxicated at the time of the crime. It's very troubling. Uh, you know, we just need to look a lot more into it. And I think we need to keep talking about it. We need to go back to these policy issues and readdress it and uh, uh, continue the discussion going. I mean, I think there's a sense, particularly with this case, that that which has highlighted the um, the sense of absolute fear uh, and the fact that uh, Black Americans in particular literally are not safe, even no, in their own homes. Think, right. I mean, here we have a gentleman who's sitting in his own home, literally minding his own business, doing nothing wrong, and ends up getting shot and killed by a police officer who perceived him as a threat. That's very troubling. It's it's scary. Phil Stinson is a professor and criminologist at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Phil, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. It was recorded for the PRI radio show The Takeaway on September 12, 2018, and originally aired on NPR later the same day. Support for the Police Integrity Loss Podcast was provided by the Wallace Action Fund of Tides Foundation on the recommendation of Mr. Randall Wallace. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash policeintegritylost.